Dark Worlds, Chapter 12 The Cold Ones I wake up after a fitful sleep and realize I'm late for work. My alarm clock projects the time 7.09 onto the ceiling. Somehow I must have slept through the dawn chorus birdsong I have programmed as my alarm. There are no real dawn choruses anymore. Most of the birds have died. No one knows exactly why. Most people of my age don't miss them because we've never known any different. I read it in a history book. There were once butterflies too. Crazy, eh? My clothes are strewn on the floor by my bed. The only thing I've put away with any care is the neural net, the VR goggles and the bottle for the inducer drug. They sit neatly on my bedside table in between my watch and the book I started a month ago and still haven't finished. My bones ache and I have a nagging headache, which I put down to the lack of sleep. At least I'm not mad anymore after the soma Alistair injected into the Dark World's version of me. I dress hurriedly. I don't have time for a shower but splash soap and water on my face and spray deodorant over my chest and clothes. It's getting light when I arrive at Woodgreen Tube Station. Once on the train, I doze and wake at the end of the line, the place where the tube tunnel comes to its end just before the guarded wall that separates outer London from the protected community of inner London and all its privileges. I walk past the Thai street food store with its clouds of fragrant steam as I make my way to the gate through to inner London. As I walk past the guarded gate, showing my workers pass to be allowed through, cramp rips through my stomach, making me double up. The guard looks on coldly. Move on in. When I don't move, still supporting myself with one hand against the wall, the black-clad guard motions with the muzzle of his automatic rifle. They don't allow trouble from the likes of us. I put a hand up to show I've got the picture, straighten up and walk on through. I think I must be coming down with the flu. I walk quickly and when I get to our gleaming office block with its neatly dressed guards, I feel distinctly unwell. Like me, the office guards can't afford to live in inner London. They simply don't earn enough money. Every morning they travel into the protected city to make sure the privileged inhabitants and their money-making machines don't come to any harm. As I enter my office, the video screens show news programs from around the world. Smartly clad, attractive newscasters proclaim words of doom. Another drought, another famine, another war, another city in a third world destroyed by a mudslide, another civil war in a place I can't locate on a map or pronounce. I think it's just to keep us on our toes, as if they're saying, you think you've got it bad now. Just look at what it would be like if we didn't allow you to work for us. My colleague Jeff is in the foyer collecting paper for the printers. I see him staring at the screens. It's the end of days, man. The world's gone mad. We get into the lift and my stomach twists and I think I'm going to be sick. Jeff is concerned. You look fucking sick, man. Better go home. Once I get to the 52nd floor in the high-speed lift, I have to run to the bathroom and kneel head over the porcelain bowl behind a locked door and wretch clear bile. That makes me even more late and my supervisor Mark is waiting. Only a couple of years older than me, Mark has bought into the corporate rat race dream and looks 50 instead of 28. Mark says officiously, I'm going to dock 15 minutes off your pay. I grimace, whatever, sure. I think I might throw up again. I wish I could tell Mark to stick his job, but I can't. I need the money. So I bow my head and accept my telling off before going to the cubicle where my data machine is and sign in. One day the corporations will devise a way of making money without having to pay anyone, but today they still need me or someone like me. Miranda's cubicle is empty. It doesn't look like she's been in at all. 
I can't go asking around for her until my break, so in the meantime, I look up Soma on the Dark World's wiki. Named after the relaxant, hallucinogenic drug in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, Soma is a potion used to restore sanity scores. Then I get some results on the dark web. The corporations are always trying to close the dark web, but it keeps springing up again in different places, like a series of subversive mushrooms. I'm not officially supposed to log in on Datacore's machines, of course, but I know a few tricks to blindside them. Lots of the guys use these backdoors to do their own stuff at work. A guy called Frogit posted on the Dark World's pirate site, Do not touch Soma. It's highly addictive. It causes cravings and physical symptoms even in the real world when you log off. There are further comments from other people. Miskatonic didn't even invent Soma. It just appeared about three months in a beta. Some player must have invented it. And in reply, Yeah, but it's good. I heard the game invented it itself, and it's inventing lots of other places and objects as it grows. How new areas like the Dreamlands and the Borderlands. Did you hear about the Light Guild or the Lux or something? Some secret guild anyway has been hacking at the alchemy skill tree and putting in new quests behind Miskatonic's back. You know alchemy's code manipulation. You do the stuff and that splices and combines the code sequences and the new ones in game. Really new possibilities. Then Supervisor Mark comes on his half-hourly patrol of the cubicles and I hit the boss button to end my dark web session as if it has never existed. I'm allowed two 10-minute breaks in addition to a 15-minute lunch break. Although I'm feeling really sick, I go looking for Miranda. Her friend Zoe sits in the cubicle next to Miranda's. She shakes her head. She's not in. Zoe is disapproving of me. She knows of my crush on Miranda and thinks Miranda is way out of my league. I feel sweat on my forehead and rub it away with two fingers. Not at all. Zoe raises her eyebrows and goes back to work. I send Miranda another phone message. You okay? Where are you? Break time over, I grab some water which Datacore charges me for and go back to my cubicle. I sit staring at the graphs and streams of numbers while beads of sweat break out on my forehead and my guts twist. All I can think of is the soma, the gleaming fluorescent gold drug Alistair Crowley gave me. Like the guy on the forum says, it is as if I'm psychologically craving for it. Sweat drips from my nose. I hold up my hand and see it tremble. Yes, my body is showing the physical signs of addiction, but how can I be addicted to a drug that only exists in game? It can't be that. I have to have a real illness. By noon, I've thrown up in the office and Mark sends me home, warning me I won't be paid for the day's work. Mark seems to think that in some way I made myself deliberately ill, just despite the company. I have a public health doctor, though I rarely go. Medical assistance is provided by the state for those citizens who can't afford private doctors, and no one in outer London can. I get to the clinic near Woodgreen Tube Station around midday. The place smells of urine and disinfectant. I can't tell which is laid on which, and guess it's a constant battle. Piss on bleach. Bleach on piss. The receptionist sits behind her reinforced glass screen stained with spit and pockmarked where patients have tried to break through in their anger at being kept waiting. She doesn't look up from her screen for a good five minutes and the queue of the lost and ill grows long behind me. Finally, she deigns to notice me. Yes? Can I see the doctor? What is the problem? She delivers the words in a tone that leaves me in no doubt that she doesn't give a damn what the problem is. I feel my anger rise despite my heaving stomach and shaking hands. 
That's none of your business. I'll tell the doctor. She blinks impassively. I need to know what the matter is before I can book you in. It's private. I see her smirk. Now she probably thinks it's a sexually transmitted disease or drug addiction. With the shivers going over me, maybe she isn't so far wrong about the second. Eventually she takes my name and tells me to sit and wait for the next slot. There are six doctors in the surgery who are massively overworked. Each patient seems to get around five minutes before the next one is sent in. People crowd the waiting room. In fact, there is no room for me to sit, so I stand by an empty water cooler. The room is humid and stinks of stale bodies and illness. People cough incessantly. When I look around at my fellow patients, I see pale skin and bloodshot eyes. Thin children whine, tugging at their mother's hands. Maybe this is what the government thinks they deserve for being poor. But the truth is, probably no one thinks about it at all. After three hours waiting, I give up. It seems other patients are being prioritised before me. At first I'm angry. Then I realise it's probably fair. There are a lot of people in there, sicker than I am, no matter how much I sweat and shiver. I run to the unhygienic clinic toilet to retch again before I leave the surgery. On the street outside, I check my phone to see if Miranda has left a message. I stare at the screen as if willing her face to appear. When it doesn't, I decide I'll travel over to Romford to see her. That means getting down to Liverpool Street Station. The line doesn't cross into inner London anymore, so at least I won't be slowed down by a document check. It takes around two hours to get to Rumford. I feel rough and my hands are shaking, but I figured out by then I'm not going to die. Images of gleaming soma in its syringe taunt me as visions of water taunt a man in the desert. It's true. One shot, and I'm addicted. I have only been to Miranda's house one previous time for a party. She lives on her own there. It's in a dangerous-looking estate, but I don't hesitate as I leave the station. I want to see her. Dodgy-looking people stand on street corners or lurk in filthy bus shelters. At least it's still daylight, and I should see any attackers coming before they jump me. Not that I have anything to steal. A small gaggle of ten-year-old street rats pelts me with pebbles until I turn and growl and they run off shrieking with laughter. Miranda's flat is the top one in the end house in a cul-de-sac. As I approach it, I see two black vehicles parked outside. They look too expensive to belong to anyone who lives in this area. On instinct, I stop and step back against the wall, pulling up my hood, looking like just another junkie. As I watch, the door to Miranda's flat opens and four men come out bearing between them a long, wooden box. It looks like it has something heavy inside. I put my hand against the wall to stop myself from falling. I watch the men's business-like progression with the box. It can't be true. How can you die in a game? But if I can be addicted to a potion made of pixels, maybe it is true that the game can kill you. The men put the black box into the black van. Both vehicles have discreet logos on them just below the front door windows on both sides, in a very neat silver pattern on black. Designed by one of the best designers in the United States is the logo of Miskatonic Games. The men are dressed in paramilitary-style uniforms with high military boots and black trousers, black flak jackets and caps. They wear sunglasses, even though there is no sun. I guess they have real-time heads-up displays showing in the glasses, identifying any threat around. Their weapons are holstered. They feel no reason to brandish arms, clearly feeling in complete control of the situation. As I watch, 
they get into their vehicles and drive away. I turn to watch them go, but they pay me no attention. When they've gone, I feel grief like a kick in the guts. There is no body, no news of her passing, but I know she's gone with them. The world spins round, I don't know what to do, but then, mind still racing, thinking out all the possibilities, I hurry up the steps to Miranda's door and knock. The sound of my knuckles on the wood is like a rapping on an empty coffin. I call her name through the door, though, by now, I don't expect her to answer. Tired of knocking, I rest my head on the door, then I try the handle, and the door opens. I step inside Miranda's apartment. The flat is about as large as mine, but in much better condition. Miranda made efforts to keep the place tidy. The place smells of lemongrass from an infuser, and it smells of her. As if scared to go in further, I stand in the open door and shout her name. When no one replies, I hurry in and scout around the flat. There are three rooms, including a tiny bathroom. In her bedroom, her bed is unmade, and she isn't in it. In the living room kitchen, there's an unwashed plate beside the sink. Then, I realise there's no sign of her gaming rig, no neural net, no virtual reality goggles, and no bottle of inducer tablets. These things must have been here, but they aren't now. I make it to the toilet before vomiting noisily, but once again, only bile comes. Wiping my mouth, I have a hopeful thought. Maybe she's gone to her mother's in the country. I believe that for a minute, at the most too. Then I believe the truth of what Alistair Crowley told me. Miskatonic have cleared up her body, like they're clearing up a mistake. When it becomes known the game is causing deaths, no one will play. Surely but I know the corporations have such money, and with that comes political influence. They can get away with causing deaths. They have done for years. Things simply won't be reported, and websites and individuals mentioning inconvenient facts will disappear, like a game of rock, paper, scissors. Money always beats truth. I close the flat door behind me, a knot like wood in my throat and tears streaming down my face. I stop halfway down the steps and look back, just in case I might see her face in the window. I'm about to leave the cul-de-sac when I see I'm being watched by an Indian woman holding a baby. She's dressed as if she's standing in some bazaar in Rajasthan. She's clearly an immigrant to this godforsaken place. If where she's come from is a worse hellhole than here, then God save her. As I walk by, she says, Are you a friend of hers? I pause. It's unusual for anyone to talk to you these days unless they're trying to sell you something. I check. She really is talking to me. I clear my throat. Yes. I am sorry for your loss. I don't know she's dead. She's just missing, I say, as if saying it might make it true. Did you not see them? I rub my cheek. The men? She nods. Her baby squalls and she holds it tight. Then she speaks again, her words certain. She is dead. That was a cold wagon. A crow lands on the flat roof to our right and watches us with beady eyes. For a minute, I think I'm in game and the crow's a spy. Looking at the woman, I say, a cold wagon. She stares. When they are dead, they send the cold wagons. I don't know where they take them. If they're still alive but have no minds, they send the warm wagons. That's what we call them round here, the warm ones. They sit them in the back seat between two of the men dressed in black, and they drive away. I think they go to different places. Who goes which different places, she shrugs. The warm wagons and the cold wagons. They're always coming round here. There are so many gamers. They spend all their money on the games. I think it is worse than heroin. And when it happens, I study her. She pities me. She thinks I'm on my way to being like Miranda. When it happens, she says, 
They send a warm wagon or a cold wagon. That's all I'm saying. I don't know where they go. She fixes me with her warm brown eyes. The cold wind blows discarded papers, and the plastic bottle rattles along the pavement. I'm shivering again. All is Brahman, she says. Remember that. But I'm sorry for your loss. I watch the woman go into her shabby flat and close the door behind her. I hear the chains rattling as she makes sure no one can get in. When she's gone, I double up in pain, sweat pouring from me. I support myself against the wall until the worst pangs have gone. I need to get back into the game. I need more Soma.